Mercule is the former Lord of the Dead who revels in reminding people of their impending death. In that sense, being a constant worry in the back of people's minds. I'm Ben Dignan, and welcome once again to Religion in the Realms. Titles Mercule has a few different titles attributed to him. These include Lord of Bones, Old Lord Skull, and the Reaper. In the past, he was known as the Lord of the Dead, though this title has since passed on to Kelimvor now. An alias of Mercule's was Nasir, among the Badin of the Anorak. Though this alias is really attributed to whomever currently holds the Portfolio of the Dead, which currently is Kelimvor. Portfolio and Domains Mercule's portfolio includes corruption and old age. For a large amount of history as a divine power, he held the Portfolio of the Dead until it was lost to Cyric after Mercule's death during the Time of Troubles, only to then pass on to Kelimvor, who presently holds it. He also held the portfolio of Autumn, but Myleki took it after Mercule died during the Time of Troubles. Mercule's suggested domain for 5th edition is Death. That and the Arcano domain could potentially work given Mercule's ties to necromancy and the arcane in general. Appearance and Manifestations When he was a greater power, Mercule's avatar's appearance was akin to that of a lich. His withered, lesioned, cracked skin covered his empty frame. He had black lips and cold and evil eyes sunken in their sockets. Most notably, though, was the fact that he had four arms, not two. Mercule also took great fun in appearing as a skeleton clothed in a black robe wielding a scythe in an appearance much in line with what we know as a traditional depiction of death or the Grim Reaper. It is said when he speaks, it is only done so through whispers. The following detail isn't 100% clear, but it certainly does read like Mercule himself made a point of visiting mourners down on the Prime Material at open graves, rather than manifesting a simple apparition. There he would stand with scythe in hand, allowing those present to gaze upon him in fear, taking satisfaction in this, before fading away after some brief moments. While he just didn't make use of any manifestation, I don't know, but it does speak to his need to make sure the people of Faerun always knew that he was a looming specter just waiting on them to eventually meet their end. More recent descriptions of Mercule as a demigod say that Mercule goes about as a cloaked individual who hides his face under a cowl, while his hand clutches what looks to be a screaming human skull. The following are two given manifestations of Mercule. The first is a flying human skull with blinding lights in its eye sockets. The second is a singular skeletal arm flying through the air that would sometimes simply point, gesture, or be wielding a scimitar. The two manifestations I described are said to be capable of most of Mercule's avatar's abilities. 
Whether these second edition abilities would be available to him now as a demigod in 5th edition is really a DM's call. Mercule could also express his favor, disfavor, or relay messages through the appearance of creatures and objects. These would include deaths, which are described to be very much like the avatar death associated with the skull card from the deck of many things, a multitude of skeletons, zombies, and other undead, bats, black panthers or leopards, hellhounds, nightmares, the deepest of red roses that crumple to dust when touched, jet, obsidian, onyx, ravens, and crows. Mercurial also makes use of his special force of night riders who ride undead mounts known as gaunts. Abilities The following are a description of Mercule's avatar's powers from when Mercule was a greater power it may need to be lessened or tweaked to work better with his present status as a demigod. Given his former position, Mercule's avatar was an extremely powerful necromantic caster, causing inherent penalties to his opponent's saves and tripling the range, duration, and or area of effect of their necromantic spells. The avatar could fly at will. Making use of his four arms, he could cast twice as many spells in a given round, in 2nd edition terms. He would also then wield a scythe with his other set of arms. With his touch, the avatar could confer a form of flesh rot that would slowly wither away the individual over months, and did not allow for cure wound spells to work on them. Yet another effect of his touch was his opponent suddenly only seeing their comrades as clothed talking skeletons, as a sort of madness set into their minds. If the avatar lost his scythe from his hands for whatever reason, he would only then reappear in his hands when he simply willed it. The avatar could clamp down onto his opponent with any of his hands, dealing both physical and necromantic damage, while sapping the target's strength at the same time. His scythe likewise dealt the same sort of damage to those he struck. The avatar could create or animate any type of undead simply with his touch. Lesser undead obeyed him indefinitely. Greater undead were bound to fulfill one service to him before being allowed to go on their own free will. Any undead without any divine influence could be reduced to dust with a simple touch from Mercule. No attack from any undead, I don't know if this means both physical and magical, I presume it does, had any effect on Mercule's avatar. As a demigod, Mercule is capable of trapping souls in wax skulls. So long as he claims some piece of the deceased, grinds up said piece and uses it in a mixture to make the wax skull, which will then serve as the soul's prison. While the soul is trapped, cold flames burn in the eye sockets of this wax skull. Mercule easily wills and compels the soul to answer his questions all while degrading the skull and imprisoning it. Personal History I won't retread the same material I talked about in the last episode on Bane, in which I touched on a lot of the history of the Dead Three as mortals. Instead, I will give a brief overview and touch on the relevant aspects of the story pertaining to Mercule. If you want to hear the particulars broken down, refer back to the personal history section of the Bane episode. Sometime in the 4th century preceding the Dale Reckoning, 
three human mortals came to an agreement to form a party and pursue godhood. These three were Baal, an assassin, Bane, a warrior, and Mercule, a necromancer. All three reportedly came from north of the Moonsea region. But Mercule's full name is said to have been Mercule Bey al-Kursi, Crown Prince of Murgom. Murgom is a nation in the eastern portion of Faerun, next to Mulholland. So it may be possible that he left his noble life behind and came to reside north of the Moon Sea for a time. Even as a mortal, Mercule was described to look aged and withered as he shrouded himself within dark robes. Whether that was because he was an older man at the time, or this was an adverse effect from delving into necromantic arts, is unsaid. While in pursuit of their goals, five of the seven of the lost gods were either brought to heal or slain by the trio. Of relevance to this episode on Mercule, in the exchange he had with the elder doppelganger Hask, Mercule wielded a gem-encrusted scepter said to be from ancient Amaskar. And with that scepter, Mercule bound Hask to the powerful aberration Hargut with three arcane syllables, joining their minds and bodies together. Dragon Magazine, issue 361, which describes the events, seem to be, seems to be dropping some hints as to what this magical scepter Mercule had might be. But I have not come across anything other than maybe Mercule obtained one of the Amarskana described in the Lost Empires of Faerun supplement for 3rd edition. The ancient histories of Faerun is not my specialty, so please... If anyone has any insight as to what the scepter may have been, please reach out to me and let me know. The description of the scepter from Dragon Magazine 361 is as follows. Quote, Producing a gem-encrusted scepter from Lost Amaskar, the necromancer pointed the artifact first at Hargut, then to Hask, while speaking three arcane syllables. Great was the roar of the Grey Pestilence as he was forcibly dragged down toward the fallen doppelganger. When at last they met, the two became one, and Hask, voice of Hargut, was reborn. End quote. Another point of note that is relevant to the Dead 3 story that I failed to mention last episode is that we do have some details about their dealings with Tyrant Thraxus. After dealing with Marum of the Great Spear in negative 357 Dale Reckoning, one of their allies in the coalition to go up against Marum was ruined by Tyrant Thraxus less than a year later. The rumors at the time spoke to how the Dead Three were involved in freeing Tyrant Thraxus, thus allowing him to cause such destruction. But no more than that was given. As you recall, Mercule in tandem with Bane kicked off the Time of Troubles, each stealing a half of the Tablets of Fate from the Overgod Eo. Mercule hid his half in his personal realm of the Bone Castle, out on the outer plain of Hades. But Mercule's hiding spot was then compromised after all the gods, save Helm, were thrown down to the Prime Material as a punishment handed down from Eo. They were blocked and banned from returning to the outer planes. As was mentioned in the past episode on Bane, Mercule helped reform Bane's essence into a new avatar form, after Bane's initial defeat at the hands of Elminster and a ghostly presence of Mistra, after she herself was slain earlier by Helm. Bane would later go on to be slain by Torm, later outside of Tantris. After Bane's death, Baal and Mercule made an alliance between the two of them, 
only for Baal to later be killed by Sirik wielding God's bane. Mercule was brought to an end atop Blackstaff Tower in Waterdeep when Midnight, with an essence of the divine gifted to her from the then-dead Mistra, lashed out with a disintegrate spell. Mercule's body in essence was then teleported by Midnight out over the Sea of Swords and dropped into its waters. After his death, Mercule's portfolio of the dead went to Cyric, which after time fell to Kelimbor. Mercule's essence both seeped into the waters of the Sea of Swords and into an important artifact, the Crown of Horns. Some of his essence floated out to the Mirror of Dead Men and animated several corpses that lay in the swampy murk of the region, creating a sudden surge of undead, causing problems for the locals. While Mercule lay dead, the vast majority of Merculites converted to the worship of Cyric, some taking to calling Cyric, Cyrook, combining their new patrons and old patrons' names together. This transition was smooth and lacking in any conflict among the various branches. This was different from that seen with the faiths of Bane and Baal. Then yet still, when Cyric lost portfolio of the dead to Kelimvor, the ex-Merculites transferred their worship over yet again, or moved on to other deities that were more in line with their evil alignments and practices, especially considering Kelimvor's lawful neutral alignment and hatred for the undead. After the second sundering, Mercule re-emerged as a deity for some nebulous amount of time. Before it was decided between the dead three to abdicate a significant amount of their p- power, to become demigods and walk the prime material, all of which was done in direct opposition to the divine mandate. Either way, Mercule along with Baal and Bane walked the continent of Faerun as of 1492 Dale Reckoning. To what end is unknown, and perhaps a later adventure module or video game will touch on this. As I mentioned in the Bane episode last time, I would not be shocked to hear that some of you are hearing this change for the first time, especially considering that this abdication and downgrading power is not mentioned at all in the singular source book for 5th edition, uh, the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. Personality Mercule is a former neutral evil greater power who is currently a demi-power. He has a cold, unfeeling air about him, and a cunning intelligence. He is always wary, reportedly never sleeping. He does not anger, rather taking a small amount of satisfaction if anyone was able to outmaneuver or outwit him, especially when it came to those who found ways to avoid death while he still held the position of Lord of the Dead. Much like Bane, Mercule takes satisfaction in having those beneath him fear him. Personal Realms Before his demise during the Time of Troubles, Mercule's personal realm was found on the neutral evil outer plane of Hades, which is also known as the Grey Wastes, or the Grey Grey Wastes of Hades. Mercule's personal realm was known as the Bone Castle, and existed on the first layer of Hades, called Oinos. Here he presided over the city of the dead, though I was unable to come up with any further descriptions of this realm. We've touched on Hades and Oinos before, both in Jurgles and Cyric's episode, but I will touch on it here again. Hades is known by some to be the most evil of the planes, but you would not know it by its physical description. 
Hades is a plane that drains the color out of all things to some shade of grey, and drains the meaning out of life for all mortals who come there. Eventually, apathy sets in, and an individual begins to have no regard for the actions they commit towards others. Those who stay here for too long lose their sense of all self and become unwilling to leave. With enough time, mortals turn into larvae alongside those evil souls who formed here after dying on the Prime Material. The River Styx passes through the uppermost layer of Oinos, and it is here that the River Styx is at its midpoint as it winds its way through the lower outer plains. Oinos is a constant battleground for the blood war between demons and devils, and Oinos has been scarred due to the eons of this conflict. It is a layer filled with stunted trees and plants. It is mostly flat, save for the occasional jagged hill along the landscape. Here a disease known as the Wasting Sickness or the Greys is ever-present. It drains an individual very slowly. It will only kill a person after they have become so debilitated to the point of being incapable of fighting back. The sky of Hades holds no celestial bodies and is nothing but a grey expanse that only darkens and lightens. It only mirrors the grey terrain below. If he hadn't abdicated much of his divine power and become a demigod to roam the Prime Material, I can only assume Mercule would have created a new realm on Hades, or perhaps maybe even out in the Shadowfell. As it is, Mercule's former realm has been reshaped, reformed, and transported to the Fugue Plane, which I do believe is still separate from Hades after first going through the hands of Cyric, and now presided over by Kelimvor as the Crystal Spire. I recall saying in the Jurgle episode that I wasn't sure if the Fugue Plane is still used in a similar capacity as we saw in 3rd edition and 4th edition, given the shift back to the Great Wheel model for 5th edition. But this isn't the case. It is called out in Sword Coast Adventures Guide that the Fugue Plane is still very much a thing. And I assume it's off on its own still, not a part of any of the Outer Planes in the Great Wheel. For 3rd edition, when the World Tree Cosmological model was used, there is mention of Mercule residing in his realm of the Bone Castle, but it is specifically mentioned that this is on the Fugue Plane, not Hades. Likely this is just the designers at the time adapting what had existed in the previous editions to fit in with the new Cosmological model for 3rd edition. But canonically, it's sort of messy now considering that we're back to using the Great Wheel, yet the Fugue Plane sound like it's very much off on its own, separate from Hades. Finally, no sources mention any possible ties Mercule has or had with the World Axis model used in 4th edition. Allies and Allegiances It is given that Jurgle and Shar are allies of Mercule. I'm not sure if Jurgle would have any real contact or desire an alliance with Mercule following his death and removal from the position as Lord of the Dead, even still, temples to Mercule still welcome the clergy of Jurgle within their walls. What sort of alliance Mercule has with Shar, I don't know. I wasn't able to find anything that hinted at that or described this alliance whatsoever. At the end of the day, Mercule's chief allies are his other two Death Three members, Ball and Bane. Enemies Mercule's chief enemies include Shantia, Lathander, and Myliki. He likely holds a strong animosity towards Myliki considering she presides over one of his past portfolios. 
The small list of Mercule's enemies is from a second edition source, so I have to imagine Mercule has it out for Kelmvor, and probably Sirk as well, as much as any of the three I mentioned previously. Avatar and Davidy stat blocks. The second edition stat block for Mercule's avatar can be found in the Face and Avatars supplement. Symbols. Mercule has two recognized symbols across the editions of Dungeons and Dragons. The one seems to be only featured in the artwork of any of Mercule's symbols. The one most people are likely accustomed to seeing is a white human skull in front of a black inverted triangle. Sometimes the edges of this triangle are made up of human finger bones. A lesser known symbol is that of a reaching white skeletal hand set in front of a black geometric shape, which is known as a field and heraldry. Central Dogma From Ed Greenwood Presents Elminster's Forgotten Realms to 4th Edition Quote, Make certain daily that all fear the Lord of Bones, who cannot be evaded, hidden from, or shut out. For the dead are his subjects, and the slide into death his pleasure and his dominion. Speak daily to all you meet of the Doombringers to come and Doombringers past. Those moved by Mercule to bring death, delivering souls to the one who shall have them all in the end, the mighty and the lowborn, those cloaked in the proud art and the barely able to speak. Silently remind folk of death by your garb, the skulls you carry, and the finger bones you trail behind you as you travel. You fear nothing, for to harm you is to die. Presence of the Faith As mentioned before, Mercule's worship is more often one born out of fear, and the fear of death is something Mercule revels in. Given how abundant the fear of dying is, even in our own world, you can only imagine how people fixating on this phobia allow for Mercule to rise in power as a deity. As it is, the number of actual worshippers of Mercule has always been small. Those who worship Mercule are said to be dour and aloof, taking a large amount of interest both in the dead and undead. Many seek knowledge and power and control over the dead, and as it is, several of Mercule's worshippers are also necromancers. Offerings to Mercule once were made to him at funerals and other affairs dealing with the dead. His name is often invoked negatively when someone comments upon their aging bodies. Despite being devoted to an evil god, a certain taboo has developed around the slaying of Mercury-like clergy. It is said that if you were to cut one of them down, the other clergy would soon find out who did so and seek out to right that wrong. A common ruse at one time, though less common now, was for those trying to escape execution to go about under the guise of Merculite clergy so as to make those attempting to enact the punishment think twice. It is less common now, since Merculites, upon hearing about this ruse, started killing such pretenders without a second thought. Given this taboo, some clergy members are able to pass through life easily taking mostly any object they want, playing up the fear and destruction that will come to those who might harm them. Before Mercule perished during the Time of Troubles, his worship was very strong in Thay, being considered one of the dominant gods there alongside Kozuth, the elemental fire deity of the Faerunian pantheon. Considering necromancy is valued highly among the Red Wizards of Thay, it is no surprise to hear Mercule's faith was important to them. 
It is possible, though it goes unsaid, that a revival of his faith may have occurred once it was learned that he re-emerged as a deity after the second sundering. Hierarchy and Structure of the Clergy Collectively, the clergy of Mercule are known as the Anointed or Grinning Anointed, given the skulls they carry and the skull masks they may wear. As mentioned in the Bane episode last, I interpret the use of the word cult to describe the Dead Three's worship in Baldur's Gate only to reflect the respective three cults within the confines of the city. This is described in the most recent uh, Forgotten Realms module, Baldur's Gate Descendant to Avernus. I like to presume this doesn't apply to the rest of the faiths of the Dead Three, given how prominent they are out in Faerun. Either way, the Merculite cult in Baldur's Gate makes use of the following three ranks in ascending order. Necromite, Skull Lasher, and Master of Souls. Over the editions, there have been two given hierarchies listed for the Merculite clergy. The hierarchy of the Merculite clergy laid out in ascending order in 2nd edition's Faiths and Avatars is Daring Death, the title given to novices, Nightwalker, Bone Talker, Shroud Wearer, Crypt Carver, Bone Dancer, Ritual Consecrator, Undead Master, Withering Lord, Deathbringer, and Elder Doom. The Elder Doom rank has been given to those clergy who have moved well past the responsibility of looking after a given temple. The ranks of the Merculite clergy in this hierarchy are tied to the names of rituals clergy members were taught upon obtaining their rank, some of these which I will describe in the ritual section of the podcast. However, the hierarchy given to the clergy in 4th edition's Ed Greenwood Presents Elminster's Guide to the Forgotten Realms is as follows in ascending order. Initiate, Lesser Anointed, Anointed, and Higher Anointed. It is a looser hierarchy with higher rank given out to those based on seniority and those said to have been visited and embraced by Mercule himself. Those who can withstand the horror and physically weakening embrace of Mercule only stand to grow in position in the faith. Which hierarchy you uh, use in the end is up to you. Perhaps you can make it so that some areas of the some areas of Faerun follow one hierarchy, while other areas follow the other. Merculite clergy address one another with the rank of death if they are a lesser member of the faith, or most holy death if they are a senior member. These ranks are to be given before a given person's name or given title. For a time, there were supreme high priests presiding over the faith but Mercule had them removed and killed after there was a rebellion fomenting as the high priest looked to deceive him to some end. For that reason alone, the different branches of the Merculite faith get along fairly well for an evil faith, since no one really has enough power to try and lord it over the rest. Responsibilities and Duties of Clergy and Worshippers Clergy and Mercule are often undertakers, though given their deity's position as an evil power, they tend to keep their faith a secret. They also bury the dead and lead funerals for a fee. Clergy of Mercule are often resistant to disease, which makes them useful for disposing of disease-ridden bodies, especially for those bodies which may be infected with lycanthropy or some sort of plague. 
Admittedly, likely practiced by the more neutral members of the faith, Berculite clergy helped to ease the passing of the dead, making it as comfortable as possible. They would aid in drafting decrees and wills, but also helping to put together cryptic verses or puzzles to stymie surviving benefactors and finding hidden treasures and riches. A skull fee could be paid to the clergy either leading up to one's death or years before. This contract guarantees that the clergy enacts some task upon that person's death. Though a hard line is drawn against the living who attempt to speak for the dead, looking to have a skull fee task fulfilled. Mercule very rarely allows his clergy to resurrect the dead. Though if the dead person made arrangements and has the fee set aside for resurrection, Mercule gives his clergy permission to take the deceased to a temple where the resurrection magics can be performed. Rituals are studied and practiced by the clergy so as they might come to entrap souls and wrangle out any secret knowledge they might still hold. Clergy may also delve tombs searching out forgotten knowledge or attempt to steal the spell books from other wizards. More in expectation than it is a duty, clergy are to do their best to not show emotion and be short with their words while speaking. Oftentimes preferring to remain silent and speak in whispers or with a calm, cool voice. Likewise, clergy do what is necessary to conceal their identities, distancing themselves from their families and former places of residence. Those at lower ranks of the faith are to aid and obey their superiors when it is asked of them, but in no ways are the superiors meant to abuse such position, whereby they live off and get by on the means of their lessers. If lower-ranking clergy members are to discover such abuses are being carried out, they are taught to begin to defy their superiors. The faith are taught to either coerce or kill, their choice really, those who punish necromancers or those practicing or learning necromancy. Finally, Merculite clergy are encouraged to sow fear amongst the living and fulfill their needs as they see fit. Orders and Priestly Bodies The specialty priests of Mercule were known formally as Grey Ones, though they were known informally as finger bones. The Knights of the Undying Dragon, who are also known as the Knights of the Eternal Dragon, are an order of undead warriors devoted to Mercule. They are led by 12 Death Knight commanders, who each control a company of 12 skeletal warriors, which then each skeletal warrior commands a company of 12 Knight Riders. This knightly order is a wholly mounted contingent, with the Death Knights riding nightmares and everyone else riding gaunts. They never increase or decrease their numbers, though it is unknown how they replace their numbers when casualties occur. While they were living humanoids, they first destroyed the green Dracolich, known as the Everlasting Worm in 106 Dale Reckoning, with the intent to plunder its horde. This is when they found the imprisoned demon lord, Eltab, and let Eltab free under the condition that Eltab served Mercule for 99 years. With Eltab at their side, the knights seized the city of Shondalar, renaming it the theocratic city of Eltabinar. Wholly dedicated to their patron deity, Mercule rewarded this order with eternal servitude as undead warriors to maintain their post. Now they still reside in the dungeons found beneath the ruined castle of Alhanar. The Everlasting Worm always reforms and amasses a new horde every century. 
By some means, the knights learned of this and mount up and march to the Sharwood to slay the everlasting worm, taking its horde once more. Since going through this repeated cycle for many years, it is said that the knights have accumulated ten or more such hordes from the Draculich. These hordes reportedly containing magical relics of all sorts. In 922 Dale Reckoning, a priest of Mercule and member of the Cult of the Dragon turned a black dragon into a Draculich and formed the Ebon Death Sect around the worship of this Draculich. This particular sect had adopted the belief that Mercule would bring the prime material into his planar realm one day. There, the living gods would be cut off from the people, and Draculiches would go on to serve in their place as the new deities. The Black Draculich's true draconic name was Chardan Sir Avitriol, but went by the name Ebon Death, for whom this sect was named after. Soon after, the priest died and his ambition of growing the sect ended. Emin Death seemed unconcerned about growing the sect, simply preferring to be waited on and served by those living unadded servitors at his beck and call. The sect was based out of the mirror of dead men. In 1202 Dale Reckoning, a rare astronomical phenomenon appeared in the sky known as the Eye of Mercule, and on the night it appeared, Emin Death crumpled to dust. Believing this to be a sign of Ebon Death's ascension and interpreting the event as a miracle, more Merculites flocked to the sect and its number grew. The Ebon Death sect would go on to fall following Mercule's death in 1358 Dale Reckoning during the Time of Troubles. Horned Harbingers were and maybe still are some of the strongest agents of Mercule. Some have touched the crown of horns, the holy relic of the Merculite faith, though not all those who are harbingers have. Most of them are wizards, specifically necromancers, or clerics. Given the exchange of Mercule's portfolio following the Time of Troubles, several horned harbingers may have once been worshippers of varying death-aligned deities, including Siric, Durgal, Kelvinvor, or Velsharun, but all turn to worshipping Mercule once they become harbingers. They are not so much an allied group as much as they are independent individuals with similar goals and service to Mercule. They mostly live in the depths of crypts or take to haunting old war zones. They animate large amounts of undead to serve them all the while pursuing lichdom or some other form of powerful undeath. The monks of the Long Death are not a Merculite order per se, given that they worship the aspect of death rather than what deity currently holds it as their portfolio. As it is, they have had ties to the Merculite faith over the years. They are largely present in Thay, but have cells elsewhere throughout Faerun. Their monastery established in the fire-steep mountains by a Mercule worshipper still bears Mercule symbols within its walls. Appearance and Dress Merculite clergy often carry human skulls or wear skull masks. The clergy of Mercule all wear black robes beneath black hooded cloaks. They cinch these robes around the waist with a white sash. Within temples, they would go barefoot and show their faces. Though when out amongst the lay folk, they wore half masks that went from the forehead to the upper portion of the cheeks, painted to look like skulls. Any exposed skin was darkened with ash. The cult of Mercule in Baldur's Gate used special flails, 
where the heads or heads of the flail have been replaced with that of a skull or skulls. While out adventuring, clergy wore the best armor they could, still dressing in dark cloaks, their half-masks, and covering their exposed bare skin with ash. Rituals As mentioned earlier, at least in the rank structure of the Merculite clergy given in 2nd edition, the names of the ranks were based off the names of the ritual clergy members learned upon earning that given rank. Some of these rituals included the Bone Dance Ritual. Mechanically, this is a variant on the animate dead spell whereby undead were raised and placed around something to be guarded. Whether there was any real dancing involved is unsaid. Ritual consecrators were charged with dedication services, enchanting altars, weapons, typically scythes, and other materials used to make magical items for the faith. Withering lords said a prayer to allow them access to a spell known as Wither, which would grant them abilities similar to that seen with the magical staff of Withering. Finally, Deathbringers had access to a special spell called Quench the Spirit, a variant on the Finger of Death spell, which allowed them to perform a later ritual on the remains of an individual who fell to the spell and animate the corpse as a powerful undead creature. As I will mention later when describing places of worship, initiates into the faith make their way into the deepest part of a Merculite temple to spend time and speak with the corpse of the given temple's Doom Warden. They fast and kneel before the Doom Warden for a day in meditation. While it is not mentioned when the initiate is to cast a spell, at some time they do cast Speak with Dead to speak with the Doom Warden. At this time, Mercule would then using the Doom Warden's corpse as a conduit, say to the initiate, quote, Know me and fear me. My embrace is for all and is patient but sure. The dead can always find you. My hand is everywhere. There is no door I cannot pass, nor guardian who can withstand me. End quote. Daily prayers to Mercule were to be said twice a day. The prescribed time was at dusk when gathered clergy would pray together. The second was a personal prayer to be given up at any time during the dark hours of the day. The dusking was a ritual that took place before a glowing and floating skull above a black bone covered altar. Offerings were given up to the altar by those who weren't worshippers of Mercule, but were seeking appeasement. Typically these individuals had to kneel when presenting their offerings. Bells with deep tones were rung to mark the start and end of the dusking, as well as each time an offering was received from a petitioner. Funeral rites and rituals performed by the Merculite faith were often given a needlessly sinister air by some clergy in order to put the fear into the lay people, both of the clergy of Mercule as well as Mercule himself. On the annual festival day of Feast of the Moon between the monks of Oktar and Nightal, Merculites celebrated their one holy day, the day the dead are most with us. On this day, the faith preached that the essences of the dead rose up and sought their living relatives to pass along messages and warnings indirectly via your usual ghostly happenings, such as objects being moved about without any source, writing upon fog glass, etc., etc., or to just stay there and observe their ancestors unseen. 
clergy and worshippers were to spend the day chanting, praying, and singing hymns, capping the day off with the midnight ritual of the flagons of the fallen. This ritual involved setting up glasses of wine, which were then set on fire. Those involved in the ritual then partook of the drink. This is believed to symbolically represent warming their bodies for a brief respite. General Locations of Places of Worship Shrines to and pieces of art depicting Mercury's symbol or likeness are common across places of the dead, though there are not many full temples to Mercury on the continent. Of course, this is because Mercury's clergy itself was never large. But likely one of the main reasons is the conversion of a large amount of former Mercury-like temples to Circus temples after Cirque obtained the portfolio of the dead, only to do then still become temples dedicated to Kelimbor. Those that do exist serve mostly as large hallowed tombs, catacombs, or ossuaries where several people are laid to rest. It is not uncommon to hear that people from several miles away make arrangements so that they can be laid to rest in such temples. The temples are not meant to serve as places for the living, and as such they only include the bare minimum for clergy to live there comfortably. Faiths and Avatars from 2nd edition remarks that most temples were surrounded by smoky haze due to crematoriums that were ever burning. This may still be the case for those Mercury-like temples still in operation, or potentially that have been newly established since Mercury's re-emergence, but I speculate these temples and crematoriums are not as active as they once were. Typically, these temples are adorned with gargoyles on the outside, and statues on the inside depicting people going through various stages of death. Undead roam the halls in many of these temples, mostly though undead of the skeletal variety. Temple guards can both be living and undead. Those operating in such capacity wield enchanted scythes. Placed in the deepest chamber of Merculite temples is the preserved corpse of the most revered saint associated with that given temple. This individual is known as the Doom Warden. The preserved corpse is placed upon a throne where initiates into the faith come to kneel, meditate and fast for a day, all the while being in complete darkness. Specific Places of Worship The ruins of Castle of Alhanar can be found in eastern Shar, south of the Shara Wood, and along the southwestern coast of the Blood Lake. The dungeon beneath these ruins serve as the resting place of the Knights of the Undying Dragon. Mercule's faith is relatively small in Baldur's Gate alongside that of his other Dead Three companions. For now though, the clergy of the Dead Three are threats in Baldur's Gate, but not enough to significantly disrupt the city. The Oath Tower out in the Mirror of Dead Men served as the base for the Ebon Death cult devoted to Mercule and the Dracolich Ebon Death. Beneath the Uth Tower, a temple called the Mausoleum of the Ebon Death was created to serve also as Ebon Death's lair. Following Mercule's death during the Time of Troubles, the Uth Tower sank into the swampy lands it was built on. A notable feature of this temple is the wards placed around it do not allow undead to be turned while they are within its walls and effectively cloaks them in a protection from good spell. What's more is that the description of this temple describes how, before his death, this temple's wards were far stronger, which does beg the question with Merkel's reemergence, as his temple's power grown once more. 
As a brief aside, considering there was a lot to discuss with Bane last episode, it was worth mentioning now that there is a lot of potential adventure scenarios that can be created around the Dead 3 moving about Faerun now. It's easy for me to think right now where Bane might consider going to set up a base of power. Perhaps he goes to Zental Keep or to Mallmaster. Mercule likewise might search out the Earth Tower and the Mirror Deadman, or the castle of Alhanar. As I mentioned earlier, Mercule's worship was formerly very strong in the Fae. Every Thane city had a temple to Mercule, and shrines were numerous. The largest was found in Sir Thay, where the Zalkir of Necromancy resided. Every one of these temples contained a shrine to Shar, and Shar herself, as I mentioned earlier, is an ally of Mercule's. The Skull Spire in Talman, along the shoreline of the Lake of Steam, was a former temple to Mercule. This tower was inhabited by Merculite clergy who did all sorts of varying experiments by reanimating the various body parts of a host of different creatures. To the west of the Skull Spire in Talman was the Crypt City, where the clergy from the temple would let free their undead. Though when Kalimvor obtained a portfolio of the dead, the clergy converted to Kalimvor's teachings and had had to go out into the Crypt City and start destroying the undead they had set out there long before. The Legacy of the Deep Dead is a temple along the seabed out in the Sea of Swords, though the source book does not specify where specifically it might be. I imagine it has to be close to Waterdeep, and the point where Mercule's dying avatar landed after being killed and teleported out above the sea by midnight during the Time of Troubles. Regardless, the seafloor where this temple was constructed is tainted out to a five-mile radius. Here, three clerical liches built the temple and have a host of undead sea creatures at their beck and call, like an undead kraken and undead sahuagin. These undead assail both those who travel atop the water and those who travel beneath. Out on the slopes of Skullcrag, one of the Stormhorn Mountains, is a prominent shrine to Mercule. The natural marble here has been shaped and worked to resemble a large skull that is a fixture for the small community that lives there. This was a pilgrimage site for Merculites before the Time of Troubles and may yet still serve that purpose, though it is reported to have been adopted by Cirrusus as well. Out on an island of Bright Star Lake is the submerged ruins of the former Amaskari city of Baluin. Several of the ruins of the city are found beneath the water of the Bright Star Lake. Here, a cleric of Mercule was combined, was combing both the sunken and above-ground ruins with both living and undead followers for any signs of magic that the Amaskari used long ago to bring low the Mahorandi gods. It is said this is done with the intention to use said magics against Kelvinvor to replace him with Mercule once more. It's important to note this might be another potential spot that the demigod Mercule might go to now that he is down on the Prime Material Plane. Somewhere in the area of the Vast, near the Vesper River and the Urspur Mountains, is a archway of elven and human bones made long ago by an orc named Gulgog Elvensbane. Hundreds of years ago, a sorcerer created a two-way portal through the archway of Gulgog for Merculite priests. The other end of the portal led to a circle of bones arranged by the Merculite clergy in the middle of a valley known as the Battle of Bones. 
a secret temple to Mercule existed on the archway side, and clergy wished to have a quicker way to reach fellow clergy out near the Well of Dragons. The portal on the Battle of Bones side remains always active, but the archway portal must be activated by a phrase that has since been lost to time. If someone approaches the arch not speaking the appropriate phrase, the portal is not activated, and the bones that make up the archway become coming down to form undead skeletal guardians to attack the trespassers. Both clerical bodies on either side of the portal have since perished, but the portal still remains active. Character Options For 2nd edition, the breakdown for the Grey Ones, Specialty Priest and Mercule, can be found in the Face and Avatar supplement. For 3rd edition, the breakdown for the Horned Harbinger Prestige class can be found in the Faiths and Pantheons supplement. The following is a breakdown of the features I think someone deeply involved in the Merculate Faith, as an acolyte or otherwise, could use as a background for 5th edition. For your two skill proficiencies, I would take Religion alongside Arcana. For your language or tool proficiencies, I would just take two languages of your choice. For your equipments, obviously there's the Acolytes equipment from the player's handbook, but you could also make use of the equipment for the Hermit as well as the Sage, just swapping some of the gold pieces you get from both backgrounds for a holy symbol. Finally, for your ribbon feature, either is the Shelter of the Faithful from the Accolade in the Player's Handbook, of course. But there's also the Discovery feature from the Hermit and the Researcher feature from the Sage, both from the Player's Handbook. To round out this section, here is just a list of 5th edition subclasses that I would think be that I think would be thematically appropriate for a NPC or PC to have if they are a worshiper of Mercule. For the Barbarian, there is the Path of the Ancestral Guardian from Xanathar's Guide to Everything. For the Bard, there is the College of, Whisper- there's the College of Whispers Bard from Xanathar's Guide to Everything. For the Cleric, the most obvious domain is the Death Domain that's offered in the Dungeon Master's Guide. I'm going to argue that the Grave Domain can also work in a similar capacity. The flavor of text of this domain does lend itself to those who are more about the sanctity of death and destroying undead. But going over the mechanics for the domain, uh, they don't specify or really call out any negative effects that are geared towards the undead other than the ability to turn the undead. Every cleric in domain in 5th edition can do that. Uh, this domain is in Xanathar's Guide to Everything. And then, given, given Mercule's ties to necromancy as an arcane art, I also might consider that the Arcana domain, as well from Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide, could be used. For the Druid, there is a Circle of Spores Druid from Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. There you'd have to reflavor exactly how that would fit into the Forgotten Realms, but I do think it is a very flavorful and appropriate choice for a Druid who would be a worshiper to Mercule. For the monk, there's the Way of Shadow monk from the Player's Handbook, alongside the Way of Long Death from Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide, obviously the latter being meant for long death monks. For the Paladin, much like I would say for the uh, Grey Domain, uh, when I was describing clerics, you could reflavor the Vengeance Paladin to be evil in my mind. 
For the rogue, there's the arcane trickster from the player's handbook. I think this could work thematically and that it lends itself to the possibility of a rogue who inspires fear using their various magics. Sorry, for in the, for the rogue and the paladin. Those are both found in the player's handbook. Uh, for the sorcerer, there is the shadow and divine sorcerer from Xanthar's Guide to Everything. For the warlock, uh, there is the undying warlock from the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. And the hexblade warlock from Xanthar's Guide to Everything. Finally, with for wizards, very obviously, there's the School of Necromancy, which is found in the player's handbook. Dungeon Master Options Starting with monsters, here's a list of monsters from official 5th edition sources that would, or I think, would worship and or serve Mercule. Now, I really could just name pretty much every undead creature on offer in official 5th edition sources. In the end, though, that would be boring and time-consuming. So instead, a good rule of thumb to follow is that if a monster's type is undead, it's more than likely fitting for Mercule and his faith. So for this section, I'm just going to point out a few creatures that aren't undead that you could also make use of. From the monster manual, there's the bat, the giant bat, the swarm of bats, panther, the hellhound, the nightmare, and the flesh golem. From Mordekind's Tome of Foes, there's the corpse flower. Finally, from Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, this one is going to be a bit of a stretch given that this creature is a celestial, but the Death Pact Angel I think is really flavorfully appropriate and should be considered. After all, it is not that uncommon to hear of angels going bad in D&D canon. Next, these are some monsters that officially don't have any stat blocks in 5th edition, but can be found from older sources in previous editions. Those killed by necromantic magic from the one wearing the crown of horns have their spirits rise up as a variety of spiritual undead known as shadow wraiths. Sorry, shadow wraths. They drain the vitality of a being simply by being around natural things. If left without discretion, they purposely seek out the worshippers of Mistra to cut down, cut them down in revenge for midnight slain Mercule during the time of troubles. The stat block and description of the Shadow Wrath can be found in the second edition supplement, said City of Splendors. Denizens are a special variety of undead that Mercule creates from valued mortal servants upon their death. The night denizens are stout creatures with long misshapen arms and stocky and short stocky legs, however they move with great speed. Duke denizens are a combination of parts to, that make up an insect-like flying undead creature to harry Mercule's enemies. Both the varieties of denizens can be found in the Waterdeep Adventure module for 2nd edition. Night Riders are an important lesser undead creature that serve as the mounted warriors of Mercule. They're, they ride undead mounts known as Gaunt's Wheeling Size. The Gaunts themselves can emit a paralyzing breath that also might drain away the victim's strength. The stat block for both these creatures can be found in the Waterdeep Adventure module for 2nd edition. To round out this section of monsters, the following are just a list of humanoid NPC stat blocks to represent various Merculite worshippers and clergy. Keep in mind with the spellcasters, you can always swap out their listed spells for other spells more fitting to the themes you're trying to get at. From the monster manual, there's the Acolyte, Archmage, Priest, and Mage. From Volo's Guide to Monsters, there's the Apprentice, Wizard, and Necromancer. Finally, from Baldur's Gate Descendant to Avernus, 
There's the Master of Souls, the Necromite of Mercule, and the Skull Lash of Mercule. Moving along to magic items. The most important artifact in the Merculite Faith is the Crown of Horns. After Mercule was killed during the Time of Troubles, some of his divine essence was imbued upon this crown. Before the Crown of Horns became an important magic item for the Church of Mercule, it had a long and storied past as a Netherese artifact. But I'm going to pass over this part of its history in favor of focusing on the history of the crown that is important to Mercule. It is stated that Mercule created the crown in a couple sources, but then referring to the second edition, Netheril Empire of Magic source book, we are told of its storied history as a Netherese artifact of power. What's sort of clear to me here then is that Mercule as a deity got hold of this crown somehow and enacted his own changes upon it, just we don't know exactly when this would have been, but it was eventually found by Lariel Silverhand who put it upon her head in 1337 Dale Reckoning. Mercule's evil magic turned Lariel mad as it mixed with her own uh, arcane abilities. And it took Kelvin Aronson, who was Blackstaff at the time, to use his own powerful magic to destroy to destroy the crown and free Lariel. Kelvin then locked away the Sundered Crown and Blackstaff Tower. After Mercule's essence found its way into the crown after his death, it eventually restored and reforged the crown while also imprinting some of Mercule's memories and personality upon it. It even changed its form from a Electrum Helm to that of an Electrum Circlet. Four bone horns are mounted around its circumference, and one large black diamond sits at the front to rest on the wearer's brow. Now fully restored, the crown began teleporting under its own will to reach the heads of former Merculates to allow them to raise up undead forces before teleporting yet again. Its last listed owner was a Yonti pureblood named Nyrus de Hothek. After wearing it for some time, it inevitably turns him into a lich-like creature, and he split off from his former Yonti allies. He made his way through Skullport and Undermountain, and made it up to the surface world. He would eventually go on to lose the Crown of Horns somewhere, yet changes, the changes it wrought upon him still remain. The crown gives this wearer an aura much like that seen with a lich, easily scaring off lesser people. While it also invokes a sense of greed and jealousy both in the person who wears it and those immediately around it, also wanting to possess and protect it. In this sense, it's very much like the One Ring from The Lord of the Rings. Through this effect, Mercule ensures only the strongest come to wear the crown. It also grants the wearer control over lesser undead and access to several necromantic abilities and spells. However, it is a cursed object through which Mercule can possess the wearer from time to time and enact his will through them. After two years of wearing the crown, the wearer is turned into a lich, and the crown then goes on to serve as their phylactery. I am not sure if the crown would still exist given Mercule's reemergence as a deity. It may have served as a source from which he was reborn out, reborn out of during the Second Sundering, though this is not described anywhere that I read. Or perhaps now it is an object that would be of great interest to him, since he is down on the prime material. You can find the breakdown for the abilities and features of the crown in a good number of sources. Uh, first, in the second edition supplements, Willow's Guide to All Things Magical, Skullport, and City of Splendors. And then, finally, in the third edition supplement, Magic of Faerun. 
The rings of Mercule are a set of rings that were created by the sect of Ebon Death. The rings are simple gold bands with the white skull Mercule placed upon them. They were fashioned before the sect's collapse, immediately following the Time of Troubles, with divine inspiration and instruction from Mercule himself. To what end these rings were uh, made to serve is unknown, but if three people, each wearing a ring, were to travel out to the former location of the Oath Tower in the Mirror of Dead Men, with the Eye of Mercule present in the sky once more, it would cause the tower to be raised up and out of the swamp, granting access to the Temple of Mercule known as the Mausoleum of the Ebon Death once again. Those who wear these rings are not viewed to be hostile by lesser undead, unless the wearer makes a point of attacking them. They grant the wearer a couple bonus necromantic spells uh, that they can cast a number of times a day. The necromantic abilities only increase when the wearer is within the mausoleum of the Ebon Death. The rings of Mercule can be found in the Eye of Mercule adventure given in Dungeon Magazine issue number 73. Death's Edge is the magical sentient scimitar found in the mausoleum of the Ebon Death. It has a hilt made of bone and blade made of black steel. It can sense warm-blooded creatures out to a range of 30 feet, and has a significant bonus to hit those who are warm-blooded as well. Upon a critical hit, it deals extra damage from the negative energy that suddenly appears around the blade. It has a rather simple neutral evil sentience attached to it that it communicates simply via a change in the coolness of its hilt. Non-evil creatures unfortunately suffer the same damage themselves if they score a critical hit while wielding this weapon. Death's Edge can be found and described in the Eye of Mercule adventure found in Dungeon Magazine number 73. Mercule's faith favors scythes as weapons. The closest approximation I would use to represent a scythe mechanically in 5th edition would just use the glaive. The following are some thematically appropriate magic items from official 5th edition sources. I feel the faith of Mercule may have access to. From the Dungeon Master's Guide, there's the Pipes of Haunting, the Broad of Lordly Might, given its abilities, the Staff of Withering, the Talisman of Ultimate Evil, the Wand of Fear, and the Mace of Terror. From Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, I would reflavor an Orzhov Charm. From Tales from the Young Portal, there's the Amulet of Protection from Turning, and the Hellhound Cloak. Finally, from Curse of Strahd, there's the Blood Spear and the Gulfias Staff. Alright, thank you once again for listening to Religion in the Realms. If you're interested in keeping up with the release of future podcasts and episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and follow the podcast Twitter account at Realms Religion. These episodes are also uploaded to YouTube as well. The podcast YouTube channel can be found under Religion in the Realms. Audio versions of the podcast can also be found on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Podcasts. If you wish to get in touch with me with any questions or just want to chat, my personal Twitter is at ShivsEmbrace, or you can send an email to realmsreligion at gmail.com, all in lowercase letters. For those who are interested, I have posted a link in the video description to a Discord server I set up. For audio listeners, you can find the link to the invite pinned on the podcast Twitter page. Next episode, we will wrap up our discussion of Death 3 with our episode on Ball. So, until next time, may Timora look kindly upon your dice rolls, Helm protect you, and Lathander light your path.
Music for this episode, Malicious, by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0.